was visiting my wife's new church. Um, and, um, you know, she, was, she is a new music director and organist of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Reston. So I visited there. Um, and so I looked at, and so the organ is, it's a second, it's, there's two-story sanctuary, and the organ is on the second story. So I'd look at my wife like this, right? So humbling. Right? I usually look at my wife like this because of her physical sign up because I'm prideful. But this is the first time I looked at my wife like this. Right? And I tell you, that organ was one of the most beautiful instruments I've ever seen. Um, and afterwards, my wife told me, yeah, that organ cost a million dollars. She's playing an instrument that cost a million dollars. It costs more than my house and my cars combined. Because it is such an expensive, valuable instrument. The church takes, spends a lot of money taking care of it. It's odd, it gets so frequently out of tune that they have to retune it every six months. And to retune it, they fly in technicians from other states every six months to tune that thing. It costs them thousands of dollars to maintain that instrument. After hearing this from her, I go, great sermon illustration. How can I use it? I'll use it today. If something is valuable and priceless, if you value it, you will take care of it. Sean Stark is always about taking care of your house because it's valuable. You need to take care of things that are incredibly valuable. Things that you don't take care of, let's be honest, it's not really valuable to you. Over, you know, January, at the New Year, January 2nd, I yelled at my son and my wife because my son took, took out my wife's car, right, to go to Target. And I said, why don't he take my car? Because my wife's car is far more expensive than my car, right? I value my wife's car because I'm paying for it. But I don't necessarily value my Honda because it's all paid for. And, if you, and I, I don't value it as much. When you value something, you're going to take care of it. The more valuable it is, the more you'll pay attention to it. Such is the thing about, this is related to faith. Because for Paul, the writer of 1 Timothy, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most valuable treasure in his life. Jesus said the same thing. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a man who found, finds a treasure hidden in the field. And in order to get that treasure, he sells everything that he has to buy that field where the treasure is so that he can get that treasure. For Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the treasure beyond all treasures. And therefore, he tells Timothy to guard it and take care of it and fight for it because it is so valuable. Why is the gospel so valuable? Because it is through the gospel you get God. One of my pet peeves is listening to a lot of reformed guys say, we got to preach the gospel, we got to preach the gospel, and agree we got to preach the gospel. But for many of them, it seems like the gospel is a religious theology or a dogma or an idea that needs to be shared. A lot of people relegate the gospel only as some religious dogma that you need to agree with. 
No, the gospel is more than that. It's a matter of life and death. Because when you understand the gospel, it is when God works in your heart so that you will understand the gospel, your eyes become open and you see God. God becomes alive. God becomes a living presence in your life through the gospel. That's Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy verses 12 to 17. Paul says, I was the worst sinner. And he is not being humble about it when he says, I am the worst sinner. He says, I am the worst sinner because I persecuted and killed Christians. No matter how bad you are, I don't think any of you are responsible for killing and persecuting Christians, no? But Paul had blood on his hands. Paul had Christian blood on his hands. But Paul says, God showed perfect patience with me and mercy and kindness to me by giving Jesus Christ my Lord. And it is through meeting Jesus Christ, his life changed. It is through Christ Paul knew God was for him and not against him. Because of the gospel, Paul knew that the only person in the universe that can condemn him was God. But in Christ, God has considered him acceptable and righteous. It is because of Christ, Paul says, I become a son of God. As a son of God, God provides everything for Paul. God provides wisdom, God provides opportunities, God provides wealth, God God provides poverty, God provides direction, God provides opportunities for him to preach the gospel. God, God uses Paul to reach other people so that other people can be saved. God showers everything to Paul because of Jesus Christ. Oh, the gospel is more than a dead theology to Paul. It is a matter of life and death. Because through that, Paul sees God. My dear friends, do you see God in your life? Honestly, do you know God is for you? Not because you're a good person, but because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you know God will lead you? Not because you're a good person, but because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you know God will provide for you? Not because you're deserving or worthy or perfect, because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you know that you are kept by God because of Jesus Christ, your Lord? Paul knew it. And therefore, Paul, that that treasure was everything to Paul. And therefore, he's telling Timothy, take care of this gospel. Preach this gospel. Protect this gospel. Fight for this gospel. Because it is through gospel that people get God. Verse 18, Paul says, this charge I entrusted to you. The charge that Paul's talking about here is the charge that he gave in the previous verses of chapter 1, which means the charge or the order that Paul gives Timothy is to fight the false teachers of the church. In chapter 1, Paul gives, as a commanding officer, Paul gives Timothy a direct order. Fight the false teachers. Why? Because the false teachers are contaminating the gospel. And if you contaminate the gospel, people cannot be saved. People will remain in their sinful state and people will die spiritually dead. 
because of the horrendous tragedy that false gospel can lead to. Paul says, Timothy, my charge to you is go fight those false teachers and tell them to stop preaching nonsense. Paul says, Timothy, this charge is in accordance to the prophecy that you received. What is Paul talking about? Let's second, let me get some water. I'm so passionate. So Paul says, this charge of fight, fighting false teachers is the charge is in accordance with the prophecy that Timothy received. What Paul is talking about here is this. When Timothy became set apart for the ministry, when Timothy became ordained, the elders of the early church came up, including Paul, came up, and they land their hands on Timothy and prayed for him during his ordination service. And during his ordination service, one of the elders, we can surmise, one of the elders was filled with the Holy Spirit And he started to prophesy, give a direct word from the Lord to Timothy. So Paul is saying, remember, when you were ordained, people laid their hands, elders laid their hands on you. And God spoke to you directly through prophecy. Remember this. Then the question is, what was communicated to Timothy What did the Holy Spirit communicate to Timothy during the ordination service? The answer is, we don't know. The Bible doesn't really show what was communicated to Timothy during that service. But what we can surmise is, it's because Timothy has been set apart for the ministry of the gospel. I think the prophecy was about Establishing a church and shepherding the church based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We think the charge, the prophecy was Timothy was to preach and teach the gospel so that people will find God and be saved. Timothy was entrusted with the gospel during the ordination service. That's what we think we can guess what was what happened. And Paul is saying, remember, Timothy, during that service, what was communicated to you, what was communicated to you was that you are the champion of the gospel. Remember this calling. When you fight those false teachers. Because fighting false teachers would not be easy for Timothy. It's not Timothy is going to go to a false teacher and says, hey, false teacher, I think you should st- I love you. I understand where you're coming from, but I think you should, you should stop. And the false teacher will say, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, my bad, man. Yeah, I'll, 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 st- I'll stop. It isn't that easy. The charge entrusted to him, stop fighting false teachers. It's a messy business. He will be attacked. By men, especially by the devil, and especially with Timothy's fallen flesh. To do what what is instructed to him to do, Timothy will face various enemies and obstacles. That's why in verse 18, Paul says, Remember the calling, remember the prophecy that was given to you that by them you may wage a good warfare. Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm going to send you to warfare. When you're taking the gospel to people and fighting and protecting and fighting for the gospel, people and the world and your flesh and the devil especially will come after you. And they are going to try to make, to neutralize you, to defeat you. 
But Timothy, you must fight the good faith, good battle. Satan in the world wages battle on anyone who holds the gospel to be true. For anyone who lives their lives based on their identity of who they are in Jesus Christ, if this is primarily how you see yourself as a child of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you primarily look at yourself as a son of God, as a child of God through Christ, the enemies will come after you. I promise that he will. But the way he attacks you, it's not very scary. He doesn't possess you like those horror movies do. Or in the remote parts of the world where the gospel, in the remote poor parts of the world where the gospel is beginning to preach, there are crazy demonic possessions and demonic activity. Right? Maybe, I mean, I'm pretty sure Pastor Wujin has some stories, Right? I think back in the day when Embrace, not before me, but the pastor before me, went to South America somewhere. Um, they got into, like, the, the Embrace missions team got a huge fight by themselves. And I think, like, almost like one of the guys almost beat up the pastor or something. It's weird. So there was a visible attack that they went through over there. But for us, the attack is very subtle. The way he tries to rob you away from, rob the gospel away from you is through distracting means. Oh, I was thinking about this like, like sermon illustration. The gospel is the football. On Sunday, and you're the receiver, and you have the gospel ball with you, and the demons, I don't know what the defensive positions are, are linebackers who tries to fumble the ball away from you. It's pretty good, right? But it's true. The demons will do everything they can to take the gospel away from you, to stop to make you stop defining yourself to the gospel. And the way he does it is through distracting means. He gives you lies about God and convinces you those lies about God are true. God loves you just the way you are. God doesn't want you to change. If you accepted Christ when you're in junior high school, you can live exactly like the world and God will still let you into heaven. God exists so that you will have a happy life here. God thinks you're fantastic. Sounds good, but shallow. And so many people Based their, their ideas about God, primarily based on shallow half-truths. The easiest way the devil robs the gospel away from you is shallow truth. Lies. Or he gives you distractions. He gives you trials. He gives you difficult people that annoy you, that all you're focusing on is the annoying person. Perhaps he gives you opponents. He gives you unemployment. He gives you different things. So you'll be focused on that rather than who you are in Christ. He gives you the cares and concerns of the world. He gives you money 
or he doesn't give you money. He gives you, he gives you all these financial issues that you need to focus on. So you focus rather on those rather than God. He gives you passions of the flesh and passions of the mind. Lusts for the opposite gender. Lusts for the things of life. Lust for the success of your children. Focus on those. Last two weeks, or December, the last four weeks, well, I was vacation, and you know, it was time of rest for me, I, I suppose. And I saw a lot of great movies including Avatar, fantastic. I was wrong about Avatar, sorry Joe, I was wrong. I saw a lot of music, con- I saw a lot of classical music concerts. Last week I went to Sangjin Cho pianist concert, and we should have gone, it was fantastic, it was so great, right? Who would have thought I like Brahms? Who would have thought? I had many delicious foods. I went to my wife's church, Listen to play such a wonderful piece of music. And the church was so encouraging and warm. Right? Don't get any ideas, by the way. And I was just, just surrounded by so much beauty and entertainment. And, oh, I was so close with my family because we, we went everywhere together. New York and all these places. And, like, we have great conversation with my, I have great conversation with my kids. It was a wonderful experience. but I could feel Satan using it to tempt me. He says, yes, your life could be this way. You could enjoy life. It doesn't mean I don't want you to stop coming to church. You can go to your wife's church, man, and you can just observe Christianity. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your children. Enjoy art. Enjoy your wife's music. Enjoy life, PJ. You're still a Christian, man. Because you can go, you'll go to church. You're still a Christian. But life is enjoyable. Enjoy life. And I thought... Yeah. Why do I have to do this? I thought to myself. Why? And then God slapped me. Slapped out of it. You see how he tempted me. There's nothing wrong with me spending time with the family. There's nothing wrong with me going to my wife's church. My wife's church is lovely. They preach the gospel. God bless them. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the things of life. But if I am primarily called to be an observer of life and not live for him, that's not the life that God has planned for me. And my dear church, that's not the life that God has planned for you. I know so many churchgoers want to observe Christianity and enjoy life. You do carve out a little piece of God for you on Sundays, but majority, you will strive to enjoy yourself and raise your family, which is all great stuff. But that is not your primary calling. There are things that God wants you to do. And there are things that God wants you to fight for. And there are things that God wants you to remember. And there are things that God wants you to strive for. Not merely enjoy. Paul says, Timothy, you will be attacked. You will be attacked. My dear friends, you will be attacked. And you need to 
fight well. How do you fight well? Paul says, by holding on to your faith and of good conscience. The word hold on to means grab hold on to something, right? Like a drowning man grabs onto a life preserver vest when he's drowning so that he'll, so that he'll prevent from drowning. The holding on to is cling on, to, cling on desperately. Paul says the way you fight warfare is cling on desperately to faith. What is the word? What the, what's, what, what the word faith here means? It means leaning on something, completely trusting in something, which is God. The way you fight faith, the way you fight warfare, Paul says, you cling on to your dependence on the living God. Look, we worship and serve the God who is alive. And the God who is alive is the God who will take care of you and protect you and lead you and provide for you. He's the living God. And we are called to wholeheartedly every day depend on him. Look, my jam, as the young people would say, is theology. I love theology. I li- the, my YouTube thing is primarily about philosophy and theology. That's all I listen to, really. And for a guy like me, it is very easy to just place God in the realm of ideas and theology and not having him involved in my everyday life. God says to me, that's wrong. Not only is he the God of this lofty theology that I have, but he's the God of every day. That's what he's telling me over and over again. As, as, we, as I was reading Matthew, you know, the Bible study chart that we give you, as I was meditating Matthew, that's what his message is to me. You need to depend upon me like a child every single day with every, with every portion of your life. Depend on me. Not just theology, but a reality. Oh, that rhymes. Not just theology, but in reality, you must depend on him. I need to be cognizant of him. I need to remember him. I need to say, Lord, help me. Lord, lead me. Give me wisdom. Every day, depend on me. Paul says, that's what you're called to do. How do you wage a good battle of faith? You lean on God. You hold on to God like a child holds on to his mother. You lean on the reality of God. My dear friends, how real is God to you? Are you tempted to leave God in the realm of just cultural identity? If you're raised, if you're raised in the church, maybe your identity in Christ is really about culture that, identifying with the culture that you're raised into. God is not simply a culture that you're raised with. He is the living God. Take him out of the realm of culture. Take him out of the realm of ideas. Take him out of the realm of all these places and place him in the area of your reality and depend on him every day. That's how Paul says you should fight your faith. Fight fight the warfare. But the question is, how are you going to fight? How are you going to rely upon him? How are you going to lean on him if you don't really know who he is. I can tell you to depend on God and you and I can see it in your eyes. You say, yeah, 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 I want to lean on God. That's all fine and good. But question is, how are you going to lean on someone that you don't know? Are you going to lead on, lean on this bad idea about God that you have? Are you going to lean on God based on this immature understanding of God that you had that you have? No, in order to lean on God, you got to know him. That's why scripture and prayer is so important, because through it, you know God. And as you know God, it's easier to rely on him and depend on him for everything in your life. The reason why you are not depending on God is because you do not know him personally. He 
he is, he is going to make himself known to you so that you will rely on him. And he says, Paul says, the way you fight warfare is to rely upon this living God. And Paul says, you fight the spiritual warfare, not only relying upon God in faith, but through a good conscience. Conscience is your mind knowing right and wrong, and you, dis- you do right rather than wrong. Paul says, the way you fight, your, fight for your faith is live moral lives. Strive to live right lives. Strive to always do the right thing. Strive to cut off the bad things and do the right things. Because if you start to live, if you start living a life that is disobedient and wrong, no matter what your theology is, God is no longer will become a reality to you. In fact, wrong behavior, immoral behavior, disobedient behavior oftentimes leads you to be away from God. How do I know? Best example, Tim Keller, God bless him. He says, when he was in pastor in New York, he says, all these youth group kids, we're all on fire for the Lord in youth group. And they go to college, and a lot of them lose faith in college. And he was thinking, why do they lose faith in college? And he said, it isn't because they found a professor who challenged their faith. That's a secondary issue. The number one reason why young people in youth group lose their faith in college is because in college, they start to have sex. And when they start to have sex, they look at the Bible, which clearly says that is wrong. But they want to do what they want to do. And the Bible is like making them feel guilty about it. So what do they do? Rather than confessing and starting to live obediently to the gospel, what do they do? They start questioning the Bible. Their immoral behavior does not lead them to repentance, Keller says. But their immoral behavior leads them to question the gospel, the Bible that says that's wrong. When you live disobediently, you will do everything that you can because you feel guilty to diminish the truth of God. That's why Paul says to to fight the good battle of faith, you must not only depend upon God like a child, but live correctly. I'm very impressed that I'm making good time, by the way. Ten minutes, it'll be done. The question is, what happens if you don't fight the good fight of faith? What happens? What happens if you don't depend on God and live a good life? What if you say, no, that's too hard, I'm not gonna. What's gonna happen to you? Paul says, your faith will be shipwrecked like that of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Who are Hymenaeus and Alexander that Paul mentions in verse 19? They were members of the church of Ephesus. They were formal, former pagans, unbelievers, who were converted to the ministry of the church, and they became active members in the church of Ephesus. But Paul says, even though they were Christians, or they professed to be Christians, they did not fight the good warfare. They did not hold on to their faith, They did not live a right life. Therefore, their faith is shipwrecked. The faith that they once had became shattered. Listen to me carefully here. 
fighting for your faith, waging against the spiritual attacks that will come your way, it is not only reserved for pastors. It is calling for every Christian. But if you don't wage this war every day, if you don't fight this war every day, your faith will become shipwrecked and shattered. Most people think that their faith is kind of in a neutral ground. They think, okay, my faith is kind of neutral. I can do better. It can go up. But it's never going to go down, people assume. People assume, yeah, because I was raised in the church or whatever, my faith can go up. But it's never going to go down. People make that assumption. Like, people left the church in COVID thinking, yeah, okay, it's COVID, right? And I'm not going to go to church. But, you know, not go to church, you know, my, my faith is going to be, I'm going to not, not go to church. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put my faith in sleep mode. You know your computer sleep mode? Not go to church, I'm just going to put my faith in sleep mode. And when I'm good and ready to come back, then I will boot up my faith again, and then it will go up again. They assume their faith will remain neutral. Paul is saying that's not true. Your faith is always headed to one direction or the other. It really is, man. Is either faith is either going towards the direction of Christ, or it is going to direction opposite of Christ. It's never on neutral ground. It never is. In my life experience. The attacks come on a daily basis. Even though I preach this passionately, I guarantee you tomorrow morning, attacks are going to come. Maybe not even tomorrow morning. Maybe I'll go home again and my wife will eat half my food again. Maybe I'm going to be attacked by that lot again. Right? But if I don't fight effectively, these daily losses will drift my faith away from God. And you will get shipwrecked. My dear Christians, do not assume that you'll be fine with and not, not wage battle against the attacks that are coming your way. Do not assume you'll be okay without depending upon God through his word. Don't be assumed that you'll be okay, but not living obediently. No. Your faith can get shipwrecked. Scary. So what happens to these brothers, Hermione and Alexander, whose faith are shipwrecked? What did Paul do? Paul says in verse 19. Is it verse 19 or verse 20? It says in verse 20, Paul says, I handed these guys over to Satan. These guys who's made a shipwreck of their faith. These guys who once professed faith in Jesus Christ, but who has now shipwrecked their faith. What does Paul do? Paul hands these guys over to the devil. How does Paul hand these guys over to the devil? What does it mean to overturn someone to the devil? It means removing that church, those people from the church. Kicking them out. Excommunicating them. Why is removing someone from the church handing them over to the devil. To understand this, you need a brief theology of the church. Quickly. The reality is this. Since Jesus came, came into the world and built his church, 
in this reality that we're living in, there's two realms. The realm where God personally dwells with his people and a realm that people are controlled and influenced by the power of the devil. In one realm, people are defined to have a relationship with God through his truth. In another realm, people are ignorant of God's truth. They don't want God's truth. And as a result, they're influenced by the lies of Satan. I think it's 1 John chapter 5, is it? I think. Don't quote me on this. Maybe you should quote me on this. Uh, I think it's 1 John chapter 5. Okay, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. It says, the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. What John is saying is this. The unbelieving world right now is a world that is controlled and influenced by the lies of Satan. People either belong to that realm or people belong to a realm where God personally dwells with his people and encourages them to the truth. The realm where God dwells with his people is the church. Outside of the church, is the realm that is governed by the lies of Satan. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 calls the devil the prince of the kingdom of air. That means the devil is in charge of the worldly philosophy under this atmosphere. So there's a realm of God, which is the church, and the realm of Satan, which is the world. And Paul is saying, if you remove the person from the church, you're you're sending this person from the realm of God to the realm of the world. That's what he's saying. And And if the person is sent to the realm of the world, guess what? They will think like the world, they will act like the world, they will believe like the world, and they will reap the, reap the fruits of what the unbelieving people reap. Listen to me carefully. There are benefits for being amongst the people of God. There are. For believers and unbelievers alike, even if an unbeliever is in the church, I'm quoting John MacArthur now, there is benefit for being in close proximity to the people of God. How do you know? Genesis chapter 18. Abraham is praying for Sodom, remember? And God says, Abraham, if if 10 righteous people are in Sodom, I'm not going to destroy that city. And MacArthur is saying that shows if there are righteous people, people of God in the midst of a city or a church, then the people around that city or the church will benefit. Right? I know sometimes being in here seems boring to you. But being constantly told the word of God and having constantly people praying for you, there is a benefit that you receive. Okay? Look, even Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, unbelieving spouse and unbelieving children will be sanctified because of the believer. Which means that the unbelieving spouse or the unbelieving children will not be saved because of the believer. But because of the family member's close proximity to a Christian, they will receive the blessings, God's protection, because of their close proximity to the Christian. I'll give you an example. My favorite YouTuber, Beckett Cook, the one who was a former Hollywood set designer turned Christian, in his podcast the other day, shared... He discovered the list that his mom kept, a prayer list his mom kept every day for him. She had a nine list of prayers that she prayed on behalf of her son every day. And Becky Cook is saying, God has transformed me and saved me from the life of homosexuality and and made me his because of my mother's prayer.
His mother didn't take him to Disney World and give him a fantastic vacation. His mother didn't drive him to Little League. His mother didn't do any of that because they were from the 1950s. They don't do that. But his mother prayed for him. And, I don't, and, and before her deathbed, she saw her son's conversion. And she prayed years for her son. But God answered her prayers. Becca Cook is saying, I am saved because of the proximity, because God listened to my mom's prayer. Guys, what your children need is your faithfulness to God. Look, I have a great relationship with my children. I don't know whether they're believers yet. I don't know. But they love coming to talking to me. Because I can share them love and truth. And I'm able to share them love and truth because God is at work in me. And even though they may not profess faith in Christ now, they're being comforted and led. My dear my dear friends, I know you, for those of you who have your children, I know you want the best thing for your children. I know you want to give your children the best vacations. I know you want your children to all go to Harvard. Don't send them to Harvard, man. It's just, they're just lunat- crazy lunatics over there, and they hate Asians. Don't send them to Harvard. But I know your kids want, like, want to send your, your kids to Harvard. I know you want the best for your children. But my God, the best for your children is for you to walk with Christ so that you will have the wisdom that they need to, that as you seek Christ, he will fill you with the wisdom that you need to love and be a good source of counsel to your children. You know, the number one, you know who the patient number one in psychiatrist's office in McLean, Virginia are? They're children of rich executives whose parents gave them everything. And yet they're lost. If you walk with Christ, your kids will benefit. There is a benefit of being close with God. But kicking the person out of the church, out of the presence of God, and sending them to the world, you are sending them into the realm of Satan. In the realm of Satan, people start to lose their mind. Two examples of the Bible in the Bible of people who, who God handed over to Satan. King Saul in 1 King in 1 Samuel and Judas Iscariot. These two men who were once disciples of God, God delivers them to Satan. God sends them to the world. And you know what happened to these two men? They start to go crazy. They start to act violently. They start to act with irrational, dis- irrational thought. The relationship became crumbled. And they died tragic deaths. Listen to me carefully. There are consequences for you not to live with God and be ignorant of him. There are. You'll be confused. Your relationships will, will suffer. You'll be addicted to things you shouldn't be addicted to. You'll be disheartened. You'll be purposeless. You have, you have no meaning for your life. You will be in misery. I think people who don't know God are so used to their misery that they don't even think what they're going through is misery. Those are the consequences. 
and to Hermonius and Alexander, but being sent over to the realm of the world, they're going to suffer that. Why does God send over former Christians to the world? There are two reasons. Number one, God sends the people that he loves over to Satan, to the world. So that by, going, by living in the world, by living a life that is separated from God, they will repent and come back to the Lord. That's why Paul is sending Hymenaeus and Alexander outside of the world, so they will repent and come back. But there is also a person that God sends from the church to the world and never have the person come back. They let them live in the world for the remainder of their days and perish with the world because those people never belong to him. Listen. People who voluntarily leave the church, who think, who have such low regard for the church, who go in and out, in and out, in and out, what they're doing is very dangerous. They're going, Satan, God, Satan, God, eventually, Satan, Satan, Satan. And yet, they don't think what they're doing is wrong. If God loves that person, he's going to bring them back to God. But the process of bringing them back to God is a painful process for that person. People don't, who fall away from God don't come back to God because they woke up one morning and said, huh, I'm going to go back to church, and they come back. It doesn't happen that way. Oftentimes, they come back to church by God beating them up, letting them suffer the consequences of their ignorance. If God loves them, he will bring them back to his fold like that. If he doesn't love that person, he's going to let that person live in the world, dwell with the world, and die in the world. Fight your faith. Fight for your faith. See God in the midst of his church. Know that the attacks for your faith will come on a daily basis. The attack that will try to take you away from God will come to you on a daily basis. Be mindful of that before it's too late. Let's pray.